Tonight, as we go forward, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles, and we're going to be picking it up in the back part of chapter 4. As we were going through chapter 4 last week, we had gone from the house of David to the, the house of Solomon to the family, if you will, of Jeconiah. Those are all those kings of Judah. And then we got to the actual family of Judah and the extended genealogy of Judah. And so we stopped at the end of Judah before we came to Simeon. And as we come to Chronicles tonight, reminder that this really is like the Ancestry.com for the Jews coming back from captivity in Babylon. They had been gone for some 70 years, led by Ezra. They're coming back. They're reclaiming their land, their territories, and being reestablished by the Lord back in their land about 525 B.C., And we'll get to that when we get to the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah came a little bit later to fortify the walls. And so we're kind of in that timeline. Most people attribute this book to being written by Ezra as an encouragement. These chronicles, these names are all here for a reason to remind these people of their legacy, their heritage in the land and their place with it. And uh, that's kind of the theme that we've definitely this theme that we've been seeing as we've gone through the book so far. So we come to chapter four and now. We shift all that focus. It started with the very first human, Adam, and took us to essentially the focus of Judah because that's who's coming back from captivity. And now we get Simeon. So let's pick it up in verse 24. The sons of Simeon were Nemuel, Jamin, Jerob, Zerah, and Shaul. Shalom his son, Mibsam his son, and Mishma his son. And the sons of Mishma were Hamul his son, Zakur his son, Shimei his son. Shimei had 16 sons and six daughters, but his brothers did not have many children, nor did any of their families multiply as much as the children of Judah. They dwelt at Beersheba, Moladah, Hazor, Shul, Bilhah, Ezim, Tolad, Bethul, Hormah, Ziglag, Beth Markaboth, Hazar Zusim, Beth Biri and Sharim. These were their cities until the reign of David. So that takes us about 1000 BC. So we just read of these people from Simeon and the regions they lived in. And that would be from the era of the book of Judges, from Joshua to Judges. So that's about a 400 year period, about 1400 BC to 1000 BC takes us to the reign of David. David is their link of identity as the political leader of this timeline and these Boundaries and people. Verse 32. And their villages were Etam, Ayan, Rimon, Tochin, Ashen, five cities. And all the villages that were around these cities as far as Baal, these were their dwelling places. And they maintained their genealogy. Meshubah, Jamalek, Joshah, the son of Amaziah, Joel, and Jehu, the son of Joshibiah, the son of Sariah, the son of Asiel, Elohenai, Jacobah, Jeshohiah, Asahiah, Adiel, Jesimel, and Benaniah. Ziza, the son of Shiphi, the son of Alon, the son of Jedidiah, the son of Shimri, the son of Shemiah. These mentioned by name were leaders in their families and their father's house increased greatly. Let's stop here for a minute. In the book of Chronicles, we get a lot of names and we get them throughout the entire book. Like we kind of shift to the administration and details of 
David's reign, when we get to like chapter 11 and we get all that. But even so, as we progress in the book, we're going to constantly get names. Names are important. The people are important. And we're going to get like placement. We're going to get job descriptions, job placement. Literally, this is the job. These are the people who did this job. For example, with the Levite priesthood, particularly with the singers later on in the book. And we get a lot of that. And it's important. People are important. The family they come from is important. Their tribe is important. Their placement of where they live is important. These things all go into God's economy and God's plan. And so tonight in the first part of Simeon here, and it's noteworthy, Simeon is a very interesting tribe of the tribes of Israel because if you have one of those maps in the back of your Bible like I do and it shows the 12 tribes of Israel, it shows the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll see that, you know, Tribes border one another, and then you have those eastern tribes, East Manasseh and Gad and Reuben on the other side of the Jordan. And like even Dan comes along and hits the Mediterranean coast, and it, so you kind of have this area where you don't have a border. It's just you. You're the tribe of Dan. you got an ocean view for about 10 miles near Tel Aviv, and that's how it was. Simeon is completely surrounded in Judah. When you see the tribe of Judah, Simeon is a circle in the middle of Judah. There's no other tribe that had a placement like that. In other words, whenever anyone from Simeon left their area, their region, and their tribe, they just, no matter which direction they went, they were crossing into Judah. Like, they're, you talk about being under someone's shadow, like, in their shadow. Like, they're literally the, the bread bullseye in the target of Judah. There is Simeon in the middle of them. They didn't, and compared to Judah, as we just read that, they didn't multiply to the extent that the tribe of Judah did. Because Judah, you know, Bethlehem, city of Bethlehem, all these people in that ancient culture, as they multiplied in the land, the nation of Israel, Simeon did not multiply as much except for the one fellow that had 20 kids, right? We just read that as well. But this phrase, their dwelling and their maintain their genealogies, just reminds us, and we, we see this, but I'm going to focus on this for a little bit tonight. There's people and their places. And we realize that there's divine design in all of that. In the book of Acts, when Paul was preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, he made that statement that I quote fairly often, where he's preaching the gospel and he's quoting Greek philosophers and he's comparing ideologies and philosophies in the marketplace of opinion. And he says that God has predetermined when we'd live, where we'd live, and the boundaries of that border. And he said, essentially, God in his sovereignty has determined when each of us would live on planet Earth, like all of us sharing it right now, what ethnicity we would be of as we come on planet Earth, and our boundaries. So literally our generations, I'm born in 1961, and you know, I'm obviously, I'm 100% European mix in my ethnic background. We, we know that for a fact. And so I've got this European mix and here I am. This is when God, this, I'm a, I'm, I am a white male in my 60s. And that's the way God made me. I don't apologize for it, and nor do I expect you to make me apologize for it. I'll make you apologize for your gender and ethnicity, so don't do it with mine. We are who we are, and we, we shouldn't change that. And to change that is an affront to God, because you're saying that God made a mistake. And God doesn't make mistakes. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Every human being, right? The other night, when Food and Fellowship, I was leaving, and Scott Cunningham was at the door, and I, I, I saw a clip of a video of a, a blind girl playing the piano 
and she has like an uncontrollable neurological thing. And she's like this and, and making all this motion. And it was beautiful. She was playing like Beethoven. It was absolutely, incredibly beautiful. And I started crying. Like I, just, I don't know. I, was, I ate my tacos. I came over here. I ran inside. I was like crying. And then Scott seems like, dude, you're all right. I'm like, yeah, I'm just crying. Happy cry. Look. <laughs> Every life matters. It's like the T- Ten Tebow Foundation. You're like... There's just, it's so beautiful. All the people, she's playing like in a public square and the people stop and they're just like jaw dropping. And like, how can she study the music? How can she play the music? It's a, she's got this neurological order, she can't sit still and it's just beautiful. And I grew up with two blind cousins. So she's got the blind thing going that I'm very familiar with growing up with my very close cousins, Kurt and Kate. God has predetermined who we'd be, when we'd be, and where we'd be. And what family we came from. And what families are coming from us. And that's our legacy in the human experience. That's why we're told in Deuteronomy for the Jews, when you wake up, moms and dads, you're going to talk about the Lord. His word's going to be on your doorpost. You're going to go out in the field, and when you live your experience and you fulfill your purpose in life, you're going to talk about the Lord's hand over your purpose in the morning. You're going to talk about the Lord's hand over your purpose in the afternoon. And in the evening, you're going to come home and talk about how good the Lord was to you. And you're going to praise the Lord and honor the Lord. And you're going to declare the Lord to your children and your children's children's Children, your grandchildren. And, and by being a blessing, you're going to pronounce, and this is in the family unit, you're going to pronounce the blessing on your spouse. You're going to pronounce the blessing on your children, your children's children. And when you do good with the Lord and you do good decisions with the Lord, it goes to the third and fourth generation, the blessings. That's our, we talked about this Saturday. Our God's a blessing God. His first, the first thing that God ever said to man create his image is that I've blessed you, be fruitful and multiply. And so for Simeon, we're told where they dwelt. They dwelt in an unusual situation. They're surrounded by a whole other tribe. You could feel inferior to the other tribe. Like if you're the sister city and you're the sister of a city of a lesser God, you could feel that way if you're Simeon. Who knows how the neighbors in Judah treated them. If they went north, south, east, or west, you're going through a Judah village. So your identity was somewhat wrapped up in the identity of Judah. But that's your dwelling place, and that's where God puts you. And as I thought about this more about our placement, because it's their dwelling first. And I've thought about all the migration that we've seen out of California in the last few years. And even in this church where many people we love, you know, three key families moved to Idaho and restarted their lives there. They're raising their children there. And that, that's what they chose to do. And the Lord blessed them and make them fruitful as they're doing that in Idaho. Bob Caldwell years ago moved to Idaho and migrated his family to Idaho. And that birthed the the Calvary Chapel, Boise. Luke Caldwell, his son, the worship leader. Luke Caldwell grew up in Boise. That's his business, Timber and Love, and his you know, world-renowned ministry of everything he does for people and home remodels and TV shows. It all, it all happened in Boise. His grandfather was from Long Beach and was a, a real estate uh, entrepreneur in Long Beach. But that's not what God had for Luke Caldwell because his dad moved to Boise, and that's what happened for Luke Caldwell. These families that have moved to Texas that we love with all their kids. Those kids are going to grow up in Texas. Eventually, Nate's not going to cheer for the Chargers. He's going to cheer for the Cowboys. That's how it works, right? And that's okay. I grew up cheering for the Browns because I was from Cleveland. But after three years in Carlsbad, I realized this is where we're going to live. And it's about time to get on the Padre Charger bandwagon, which is just like being on the, the Guardians and Browns bandwagon. You know what I mean? Like, you never win at all. But still, like, I had a new identity. And I'll say this about our our borders and boundaries. 
as the book of Acts went forth and the gospel went out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the gospel went to each and every town, and then it went to villages. And as the apostles went out and they shared the gospel, they came into these little towns where there's a world of that town, and there's leaders in that town. There's community leaders. There's women of influence. There's men of influence. There's trademen. There's a life, a, a livelihood. There's magistrates. There's Roman influence. There's Roman roads. And they brought the gospel into those communities. And within those communities, new communities were birthed, the birth of the church in all these communities. And so churches popped up all over Syria, Antioch of Syria in these places. And then they popped up all over modern Turkey. And then they got into Europe with Paul on his third journey. And that's, that's how the church grew. And if you study global missions and world missions, which I do quite a bit, not only are there like 15,000 denominations around the planet, there are also tens of thousands of mission organizations. There's about 10,000 major languages, but really 39 of the ones you study in universities are the, the major languages, Mandarin, Spanish, English being the primary ones, uh, Arabic. A um, few others are the main primary languages. There are step languages, they're, they're dialects, they're like the children of the mother language, and there's tens of thousands of those, but most of them are going to be gone from planet Earth by the time uh, Mark Coca grows up, who we dedicated a couple weeks ago. They're projecting that 10,000 dialects will disappear in the next 80 years because they, in the internet age and modern communications, they're irrelevant, they're ancient tribal languages, and there's not enough grandparents to keep them going. The world's really moving toward 39 main languages. It's all, it's all part of God's design. Like when we live, where we live, who we are, and all that. Our dwelling place. Our dwelling place is Orange County, primarily for most of us, or Southern California. That's our Jerusalem. And as people have chosen to leave and go to other places, this is still our home. This is our dwelling place. We still live in Simeon in the middle of it all. And that's a good thing. Because when you have a peace where you belong, then you can be fruitful where you belong. And like Gail Irwin said to me so many years ago, it's not where you are, but who you are. And for us, it's who we are. Now, some of you may be called to go on in other places at other times. I may be called to go on in other places at other times. Who can know what the Lord has and what he, he intends for each one of us? But still, he has our dwelling places. And really, we want to be fruitful wherever God has put us. So this is a reminder to us that it's okay to live in Southern California. You know, our governor is Gavin Newsom. He's our governor. We'll have another governor, and then we'll have another governor, and then another governor. Mark Cook is going to have lots of governors if he stays in Southern California for the next 80 years, right? They come and they go. We've had different mayors in Huntington Beach. We've had different city council members in Costa Mesa. We've had the presidents. They come and go. That's just the way it works. It's not about who's up here, but who's doing the kingdom work right here. Because regardless of, there's always threats externally against God's people one way or another. And it's never about the threat. It's about God's people just being God's people. That's what we're told to seek to live a quiet, peaceful life and to heed the word of the Lord and obey the word of the Lord. That's why Jesus said we're the salt of the earth and the city on a hill. And we're to let our light shine. That's why Colossians tells us that wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. And that children are to honor their parents. And parents are to love their children and not provoke them to wrath. 
and that workers are to be diligent, hard workers for their bosses, and bosses are to respect their workers and the value of their workers. And see, the church of Jesus Christ is salt and light when we do these things in our community. We are the salt and light of the community. When we go shopping, when we're involved in youth sports, we're salt and light. When we wake up in the morning, the Lord doesn't say, hey, fix Washington, D.C. Fix Sacramento. He says, pray for D.C., pray for Sacramento. But where we get to have the influence is where he sends us. And our tribe is the body of Christ. Specifically, our tribe is really the Calvary Chapel movement. Because there's different flavors in the body of Christ. That's why we need to respect other ministries. Just because Naphtali and Gad and Asher don't kind of do things the same way we do in Simeon doesn't mean they're not part of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you follow what I mean. We want to respect what God's doing in other tribes. Their dwelling and their genealogy. And as you think about this, they kept their genealogy, so they kept a record that future generations could know what, who they came from and what they're about. And really, four generations can be pretty linked can be linked closely together. I have four generations plus of stuff in the Baran family archives that I've received from my dad. I actually go back farther to the Truesdales and the Jannies, which go back to the Civil War. So I can go about five or six generations back. And I can see the churches they went to and these things and that things. But really what I'm focused on is not so much the heritage I've received from my liberal Protestant dad or my uh, devout Catholic mom. I'm focused on what Christ is doing in my life right now. And how that affects my marriage and how I treat my wife. And how that affects us and how we minister to and lead and set an example for our adult children. And how that affects me when the grandkids come over and how I'm praying for them when I don't see them and how I act with them when I do see them. See, because that's the generations. And see, I'm perpetuating the gospel in the lives of the generation in my own family unit and beyond my family unit. And I'm perpetuating the gospel message and glorifying Christ and how I carry myself and I manage the affairs of my life to my wife and to my children and to my children's children. And so this is a reminder, this is our dwelling, these are our family units. And also when you come back to the body of Christ and going back to the book of Acts, again, I would remind us too that in the New Testament, as the gospel message went out, the family of God was birthed and every church became its own family unit. So we're a, we're a local church, part of the universal church. That's what we are tonight. Look at us. We're like a family at a family gathering, right? Like Saturday night with food. Tonight it's the Lord's table. This table unifies us in our common faith. We're serving Jesus Christ. Most of us live in this area. We're doing the best we can to live out our life in faithfulness to the Lord in the home we live in, in the community we move in, how we act, how we respond. We're trying to do well with the Lord. Yes and amen? Yes. So this is a reminder, like, hey, it's okay. Like, it's, it's good to be content where you are and to be fruitful where you are, as, a, as even the world says, bloom where you're planted, right? So we're here now. We get so caught up, like, oh, I'm not there, and I could be there, and if I save up this, I can be. Listen, we're here and now. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us. We're here. We're now. Have a vision for the future. Have a vision for future generations, for sure. But it really is here and now. This is what God is doing today with us here and now as a church. Last day of February. Now we read on. 
They have their story. They had their timeline. They had their dwelling. We have ours. Verse 39. Still talking about Simeon, but now a later generation of Simeon. So they went to the entrance of Gador as far as the east side of the valley to seek pastures for their flocks because the families were increasing. And they found rich, good pasture, and the land was broad, quiet, and peaceful for some Hamites formerly lived there. These recorded by name came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, so we just finished Second Kings, and we know Hezekiah is a couple hundred years after David. So it's still Simeon, but now it's a different time. I mean, in 200 years is a long time, right? That's like the War of 1812 and right now. That's a long time of separation from David Hezekiah. But now we get another detail. So they attacked the tents of the Menuhites who were found there and utterly destroyed them as it is to this day. So they dwelt in their place because there was pasture for their flocks there. Now, some of them, 500 men of the sons of Simeon, went to Mount Seir, having as their captain Peltiah, Neriah, Rephaiah, Uziel, the sons of Ishi. So they had four captains, and they defeated the rest of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they have dwelt there to this day. So we get a little bonus detail about the tribe of Simeon that a couple hundred years after the time of David and what we just read, they were looking for more territory. They're looking to grow in their prosperity, if you will. And listen, when you read this text, you're like, wow, it sounds like takers. But it's not true because this land belonged to Israel. And these three people groups that were there were not to be there. So you have to think of it this way, squatters and landlords. The three tribes here are squatters. It's not their land. It's not their pastures. It's not what's promised to them. They have no claim to it, no deed to it. And it belongs to the Lord. And the Lord gave it to the tribe of Simeon. This is right smack dab in the middle of Israel, right up the road. And God warned them time and time again, they can't be there. So the people that were there shouldn't have been there in the first place. And so actually it's commendable and it is a favorable description of these Simeonites, these four leaders going after everybody. And unless we lose heart or lose track of things, the Amalekites are the most vicious, evil people in the world. And their sole purpose with the kingdom of hell, the devil himself, is to keep Jesus Christ from coming to the world and being the savior of the world. That was the entire plan of the devil behind the Amalekites. To, to try and stop the Messiah promised in the book of Genesis, Jesus, from coming to the world. And the Amalekites never go away. They're like demons. They just don't go away. And even Herod the Great was a descendant of Amalekites in trying to eradicate the baby children there in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus was born, trying to kill Jesus. So it just reminds us that sometimes to enter into what God has for you, it is going to be a battle. You wish it wasn't. But sometimes it just is. Sometimes it just be and do and grow into the area that God has for you. It's a battle. And know this, every step forward with the will of God and the kingdom of light is a repulsion and a moving back the kingdom of darkness. So there is going to be conflict. When you go forward in your ministry, in your calling, when God raised you up at work, there's going to be conflict from people that are jealous that God's raised you up just like Joseph in the Old Testament. When your church is thriving, there'll be other churches that will be against you because people get jealous even in the name of, and especially in the name of religion. So don't ever be surprised that when God's putting his blessing on you or calling you to step out and expand your kingdom, there's people that are contrary to it and might even have to be moved out of the way to do it. Some people just cannot stand conflict. But if the conflict's going forward in the Lord, then 
to obey is better than to just play religion in church games. I don't like conflict either, but let me tell you, in 35 years of ministry, I've had a lot of conflict I wish I didn't have, and I wish I could have avoided, but it just comes to a point where you have to stand up and, and do, deal with things that you have to deal with. Some of you see me have to deal with difficult things in the sanctuary in times past. I don't like it, let alone things outside the sanctuary. Sometimes in expanding your borders and expanding your boundaries, which was our study Saturday, you got you to gotta deal with Hamites, Menuhites, and Amalekites. And when you do, you just got to do what you got to do. And in our case, we don't do this, but we, you know, you just, you just got to do what you got to do sometimes. Chapter 5. Now we move on from the Simeonites to the Reubenites. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler. Although the birthright was Joseph's, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Joel were Shimei, his son, Gog, his son, Shimei, his son, Micah, his son, Reiah, his son, Baal, his son, and Bera, his son, whom Tiglath-Pizler, king of Assyria, carried into captivity. He was leader of the Reubenites and his brethren by his families. When the genealogy of their generations was registered, the chief of Jeel and Zechariah and Bela, the son of Azza, the son of Shema, the sons of Joel, who dwelt in Arar, as far as Nebo and baal Mian. Eastward, they settled as far as the entrance of the wilderness, this side of the river Euphrates, because their cattle had multiplied in the land of Gilead. Now in the days of Saul, so King Saul, so now that's before King David, and really somewhat the same time as King David, they made a war with the Hagarites who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area of Gilead. Now Reuben, they settled on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land? Well, Moses brought them out of Egypt, but then as they wandered in the wilderness, and then Joshua brought them into the promised land, that the two and a half tribes settled on the east side, modern Jordan, and they settled on the east side. They felt like the land was good. There were dwelling places. They had victory over uh, the kings there and whatnot. And so they chose to stay there, and that's where Reuben is. They have a little spot across the Jordan River by the Dead Sea. There's not much there. Mount Nebo's in their territory where Moses, you know, went to be at the Lord. That, that was God. God had them settled there. That was their land. But that Jordan River is just a natural barrier that separated you from the people. You know, when you look at histories of war on planet Earth, rivers are huge. Rivers are natural borders. Like, you know, the Rhine in World War II, and even, you know, like, that's just the way it works. Like, rivers work that way. And there was something about those two and a half tribes on this side, what is now modern Jordan, and the other, you know, tribes being on this side with the Mediterranean and Jerusalem and all that. So that's, that's where they were. we're. What we're looking at right now are the two and a half tribes on the east side. And we'll see when we're done with chapter 5 tonight, when we wrap it up, that they get taken away, as we know from 2 Kings, and they never come back, and they just kind of blend into the sea of humanity. Now, we read in this text that the original son of Jacob, Reuben, who was the firstborn, so he should have had all the rights of the firstborn. A firstborn, firstborn, first in order, you have the rights. But because he's involved with his father's maidservant, Bilhah, he was, he was disqualified. 
It cost him his birthright. In other words, he committed a sin that defiled himself, defiled and dishonored his dad, dishonored his brothers. Dan and Naphtali were the sons of Bilhah, his half-brothers. So he had this involvement with their mother, not just his dad's relationship, but his brothers, half-brothers, mother. And later on, of course, in Deuteronomy and the law of God, these things are completely forbidden across the board for obvious reasons. But it's a strong word. You know, it's just a strong word. Come to chapter 5, verse 1. It's a strong word, but defiled. Defiled is a strong word, you know. It's not a, there's no soft landing. It's like a hard landing in John Wayne. Like, boom, boom, boom. Like, defiled is a strong word. You can't say, like, oh, you know, I was offended. No, this is defiled. It's very offensive, defiled. And being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we all have a concept of what defiled might be. We've all experienced having been defiled or defiled or feeling defiled in the human experience. It's pretty impossible to not have it go that way. There's Maybe when you're growing up, people did things that made you feel defiled. Maybe your parents or relatives or just things you're exposed to, spending the night at a friend's house. We get defiled. Sin defiles us and affects us. It affects our mind. It skews our thinking. It affects our behavior and messes us up. People do stuff like that. The important thing is that we're not defiling people. Now, in his case, it had a consequence. So he, he crossed the line by being involved with Bilhah, his father's other wife, if you will, his brother's, two of his brother's mother. I mean, this is going to create tension in a family of 12. And he, he, it says he, but was, he defiled his father. It was dishonorable to his father. And because he was the firstborn, and in that culture, he was the heir. He's the one that, he's like the, he's the executor trustee of the estate. You know, he's the top beneficiary of the estate. He's the guy in charge of everything. But because this happened, he's in charge of nothing. Which reminds us, we all know this anyways, there's always consequence. There's cause and effect. And there's always consequence from sin. And the point of reading this and teaching this isn't to beat us up for it. But just to remind us that there's always consequence of sin. We all know that. Unfortunately, most of, are, most of us in our lives can look back and say, you know, I crossed that line and it set me back for three years. It set me back a year. Or I made this decision and it set me back six months. Or I did this and did that and affected my life for years. And here's the thing about when we've defiled ourselves that I was thinking about today. Hey, people get abortions, they regret, right? People do all kinds of things that you regret. And then the devil who tempted you in those things wants to pour it on you to condemn you to not go forward from those things. So it's super important to understand that Jesus Christ takes us forward from defilement. See, when John wrote 1 John, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. Cleansing is the right word to deal with defilement. And on this day, February 28, 2023, whatever we have done to defile ourselves or been defiled by others, there is nothing. There is nothing we can do to change it before this day. Like, you might have regret. I might have regret. We might have regret over really bad decisions at some point, some way, somehow, or remorse. And we might even just be fully a victim. But you can't live as a victim. You, you cannot live as a victim, follower of Christ. He didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave and send tongues of fire to live your life as a victim. That is so we can live our lives as victors, not victims. 
Christ is the victim for our sins so we can be the victors in the new man in Christ Jesus, the woman of God, the man of God. And so thinking about his defilement, because I go back to, and I show this occasionally, I received a letter from a guy in prison one time who murdered somebody. He murdered his stepdad when he was 16. And he wrote me and asked me, do you really think I can be forgiven? And I said, absolutely. Now, he's going to pay a debt to society. He killed someone. He took a life. You know, there's a consequence for taking a life. Now, he was, by his account, his stepdad abused him, provoked him, did all kinds of things to him. And he just, he snapped and couldn't take anymore. And, you know, he wasn't serving a life sentence. He's, in fact, due to get out. And he was in his early 30s. So he'd probably done like 18 years, 20 years. Even so, you got to go forward from killing someone. I can't even imagine. But Paul went forward from killing someone. David went forward from killing someone. And Moses went forward from killing someone. And they all went forward from it. I remember the man that I met at Calvary Christa Mesa some 20 years ago. Couldn't even talk about the story even years after the fact. But he was a drunk driver and he killed a 17-year-old as a drunk driver. He did seven years of prison, manslaughter. He took, he took the life of someone's 17-year-old. Think about that one, parents. Oh, well, Bella's like 16, right? My daughters, when they're 17, if a drunk driver took Hannah or Leah's life, I can't, you know, you, just, you, can't, you didn't want to go there. But nonetheless, you, the guy had, you know, served his time. He was serving the Lord. He was an old, old worship generation. And I was able to just really encourage him that God has a future and a hope for him. Because he does. See, if, see, we're trusting Jesus Christ to raise us from the grave. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And, and like Abraham, we believe God has to count us for righteousness. And we're going forward in the new woman and the new man. But it's not that resurrection, that glory of glory to come and layers of glory unspeakable for all eternity isn't based upon the earning. It's based upon the receiving and the obeying and the becoming. I believe, I have to believe, but I correctly believe that no matter how defiled someone is, if they're willing to repent of their sins, Christ will forgive them. And if for some reason they've crossed the line between them and the Lord, how would I know that? And how would you know that? How would anyone know that? It's like people say, do you think they're really saved? I'm like, how would I know? I, I look at the man in the mirror and just say, stay out of, the, stay out of trouble. Like, how would I know? So see, we should always presume that what Christ wants to do in someone's life, no matter how defiled they've been by decisions they've made or perpetrated upon them by other people, that God wants to give them a future and a hope. And that future and hope is in Christ. So the victims of violent crime, the victims of rape and all these things and all these things that people have, the victims of just horrible experiences and accidents like, ah, I often ask myself when I read of a tragedy, if I was called on as a pastor to minister in that situation, what would I say? To the victims, there's a future and a hope. To the perp, the perpetrator, I'd say there's a future and a hope. That, that young girl that killed the three people in the car accident here at Magnolia and PCH about four years ago, when those four kids from the Inland Empire were here celebrating graduation, and the three of the four of them were killed, it was just horrible. Just, I mean, just unbelievably horrible. I think of the parents. But then I think, what if someone asked me to go speak to her in prison? What if Haley was supposed to go speak to her in prison? Like, well, you know, what would you say? You would tell her there's a future and hope. Because there is. Your scope of ministry might be limited to this prison, but there's definitely 
a future and hope. You know, I spent years praying for a woman who was a waitress who left work in Vero Beach, was driving across the causeway. Devin, you can picture the causeway, the main one. Coming back from the beach, and one of the kids from the youth group at Calvary Vero was, he had been drinking with some friends, and they were goofing off on the bridge, on the causeway. There's a walkway there. And he swerved. They were going to be fishing at night off the bridge. He swerved. She hit him, and it killed him. He died. And she, went, she was sentenced to seven years for manslaughter. Her blood alcohol is like 0.09 or something. She was a cocktail waitress. And of course, it dramatically affected the youth. It dramatically affected the youth ministry of Nate and Hannah. And because the kid was from the youth group that was killed. And Hannah sent me the court video, like all the kids there upset with this girl and how she looked with her lawyer and all this stuff. It was just, it was a horrible experience top to bottom. The family actually moved to the same street as Jim and Christy Gallagher. They lived next door to the Gallaghers, actually, the family that lost the son. All that to say is I prayed for that woman. I prayed for her. And, you know, I heard about it about nine months ago that she got out. And when I was in Vero Beach, occasionally I, I just, I pray for her. Because that's someone's daughter. And how many times did people in this room drink alcohol above 0.08 and get in a car and do something stupid? I'm not speaking for you, but for me, way more than once. And I praise the Lord I didn't do something like that to somebody else. Could have easily happened. How different my life would have been. God has redemption for the defiled. God has redemption for the great sinner. And there's a future and hope for every soul and human being on planet Earth. And we should never think otherwise under any circumstance because it's never our place to make that call, ever, under any circumstance. And the moment you make that call, that's almost like when you become judge and jury of God's word. Once you start judging his word, Man, you lose your whole foundation. Let God be true and every man a liar. It's the same thing. Once you're judge and jury and you're con- the condemner of the human race, there's a slippery slope you may never, you'd be way worse off than the defiled person. So when I think about Reuben defiling his dad's situation, horrible, his life was never the same. You lost the birthright, you're out of the will, you're out of the trust, you're all that, forget it. Still though, he's got to wake up and face the day and I want him to wake up and face the day believing Philippians 3 which is forgetting those things are behind, I press on and what lies ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because none of us can change the mistakes of yesterday's defilement. We can only go forward in the faith of today, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Yes and amen. All right, now we finish up the chapter. So we got Simeon and Reuben. Now we get uh, Gad and Manasseh East. So the children of Gad dwelt next to them in the land of Bashan as far as Sakala. Joel was the chief, Shaphan the next, then Janii and Shaphat and Bashan, and their brethren of their father's house. Michael, Meshulam, Sheba, Jorai, Jachin, Zia, and Eber. They were seven in all. These were the sons of Abahel, the son of Hurri, the son of Jorah, the son of Gilead, the son of Michael, the son of Jeshashiah, the son of Jado, the son of Booz. Ahi, the son of Abdiel, the son of Guni, was chief of their father's house. And the Gadites dwelt in Gilead, in Bashan and its villages, in all the common lands of Sharon within their borders. All of these were registered by genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. 
Again, those are guys we just read about in 2 Kings. So again, these group of people are identified yet again with political leaders of their time. It gives the timeline. Like I was born when Kennedy was president. It gives us a timeline, right? Verse 18. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war. They made war with the Hagarites, Jeter, Naphish, and Nobod. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand. And all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, 2,000 of their donkeys. Remember, livestock is wealth in that culture. Also 100,000 of their men. Total route. Verse 22. For many fell dead because the war was God's, and they dwelt in their place until the captivity. So here, the tribe of Gad, we have their genealogy, their placement, again, on the east side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan. But they collectively, these two and a half tribes, formed a military unit of 45,000, 44,000 men. They were very able. It says they're able, and they were capable, and they were skillful. They were elite military people, and they fought a very serious war. You lose track of all the violence of men in wars in human history, but this was serious. For it says they went to war, and it says that the war, because the war was God's. And you know, like, you're, when you're obeying the Lord, your battle's his battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's what David said when he ran at Goliath. The battle belongs to the Lord. And when Paul, in his life, he said, I fought the good fight. And like we were saying earlier, some things are just a battle. But know this, they're our example because they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayers because they put their trust in him. And yet again, we're reminded that no matter what we're facing, the answer is always to put our trust in the Lord. It's always, it's good to have a good lawyer. It's good to have a good doctor. It's good to have a good neighbor. It's good to have a good retirement benefits. But ultimately, it's always best to trust in the Lord because the Lord's the one that has the fullest capability to come through for us in what we're facing. If you Google a definition of trust, you'll get collective descriptions, and we all have maybe different ideas of what we think trust in the Lord looks like. But a collection of a few definitions I wrote here, it's a firm belief in the integrity, the ability, the character, the confidence, and the reliability of someone or something to carry out what you're trusting them in for. So again, firm belief that their ability, their character, the, the confidence you have in them and that you can rely on them. To rely on them and to believe in them. People trust in so many things and so many, so many things that are not worthy to be trusted in. The Lord alone is worthy of our trust in whatever we're facing. A few weeks ago, someone said to me, they're talking about a court case they had and they were all worked up. Boy, they're worked up. I said, no, I said, oh, the Lord's in control. Well, you don't know this judge, a woman judge, she's woke and all this and that. I'm like, I was like, stop it already. Stop talking. I said, look, you're trusting in Jesus to raise you from the grave when you breathe your last. If you don't think God's bigger than, I said, a, a woman judge in Santa Ana, and they said, a woman judge in Riverside. Wow. I didn't know that. That's a little unsettling. In the empire, a little more mojo to be afraid of. 
this is ridiculous. You're going to court. You're trusting Jesus to raise you from the grave. If you're trusting to raise you from the grave, you can trust that he's bigger than this judge and whatever it's yes or no, open door, closed door, whatever it is, it's from the Lord. Shut your mouth and go to court and have some faith. Big God, little problem. Little God, big problem. I've been sitting in church for 30 years. All worked up over some, the boogeyman. You know, 90% of what you worry about will never come to pass. And the 10% just trust in the Lord. One of the frustrating things in ministry is to pastor and lead people and try not to trust in the Lord. And some people just don't. Oh, don't trust in me. I'm telling you who to trust in. And I'm giving you the truth. So if you can apply it, you'll do well. If you can't, I can't help you. If you want to wake up tomorrow morning terrified of a female judge in Riverside County, then that's, (laughs) I can't help you. Especially after I just taught the Bible for 50 minutes. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They called on the Lord. He heard their cry because they trusted in him because the war was the Lord's. So yet again reminded, worship generation, give it to the Lord. Verse 23, trust in the Lord, give it to the Lord. He's worthy of our confidence to rely on and believe in. So the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land, and their numbers increased from Bastion to Baal Hermon, that is, to Sinir or Mount Hermon. So now that's all the way up in, towards Syria and Damascus. These were the heads of their father's house, Ephraim, Ishi, Eliel, Ezreal, Jeremiah, Hadviah, Jahadel. They were mighty men of valor, famous men and heads of their father's houses. But... And yet they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers. They played harlotry after the gods of the people, so they worshiped false gods of the land. That's why they need to get the people out of the land, so they're not stumbled by them, whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pizlir, king of Assyria, and he carried the Rumanites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Habor, Hara, and the river goes on to this day. So those two and a half tribes were taken away into captivity because of their idolatry. God said they would go away if they worshipped idols. They worshipped idols, and they were taken away. And they were taken away to other parts, up by Syria, Turkey, Kurd, where the Kurds are now, and that region, never to be heard from again. They just melted in, into that land. Which just goes to show us, no matter how mighty and famous you are, if you're unfaithful, it's not going to be a good ending, Right? I mean, what a contrast of words. They're mighty and they're famous, but they're unfaithful. Man, we just want to be strong in the Lord and faithful in the Lord and fulfill what he has for us. Yes and amen.